0: Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 124. This is a psalm that Eugene Peterson referred to as a song of hazard, a song of hazard. And uh, as a bit of a juxtaposition to that, we're also talking about God as the rescuer from these hazards that we face. If If you've ever been tempted to think that placing your faith in God, placing your faith in Jesus, uh, in the words of Scripture, is going to fix all or even most of your problems, you will find no support uh, in the Bible or from the Psalms, especially, uh, uh, for that way of thinking. If anything, faith amplifies our problems because, because faith drives us to honesty. Instead of stuffing down and denying the pain and the hardship and the trouble of the world that we live in, it it calls us to speak and to live honestly uh, in light of those things. So faith will amplify the problems we already have, and it will also at times add to the problems that we already have. And it of course solves a lot of problems too, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's important to enter into any discussion about faith with the understanding that whenever a Christian gets diagnosed with cancer, loses a job, is betrayed, goes bankrupt, receives bad news, there's a Christian somewhere to whom these same things are happening. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Trust in God, trust also in me. The Apostle Paul wrote that it's been granted to you, people of Jesus, not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. What's that all about? Well, uh, Psalm 124 is filled with metaphors that speak of things like violence, trauma, and instability. From the history of Israel and also from the history of David's own life. David is the writer. He says people rose against us. Their anger kindled against us. There were also floods and torrents and raging waters. We were like prey to our enemies' teeth. Our enemies were like a pit bull that, 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 that had us around the neck with their fangs. Now, David could be referring to a lot of things. He could be referring with all of these metaphors to the history of Israel, their national history. Uh, the, the book of Exodus talks about how they were enslaved to, to Egypt and the Egyptian pharaoh for many years. And then Babylon and Assyria, and the, the years of captivity, where, where, where the great powers of Babylon, and, and then in another time, the great powers of Assyria invaded home and way of life and city for the people of Israel and took them into captivity. Could be referring to the violent Haman in the days of Queen Esther, who. Uh, was on a mission against the jews not unlike hitler's third reich he could be talking about the philistines and how the philistines were always a threat of attack and violence or he could be referring to his own personal history david might about those years when king saul uh, had a, a bounty on david's head tried to run a spear through David because of jealous rage. Or he could be referring back to Absalom's revolt when his own son, Absalom, tried to steal his throne from him and humiliated him repeatedly in public and turned so many people in the nation against his own father. The point is this. If, if, if you live with pain, the Bible is probably the most relatable book that you will ever read lay eyes on. And in the Bible, and in this psalm in particular, is also the provision of rescue from two very unsettling human struggles that are especially associated with people who are trying to figure out God. One is cynicism about God. One is self-contempt. And the answer to both is faith, what I'll call faith with a filter. So let's start first with with our cynicism about God. You know, David says, Dave, David doesn't really show a whole lot of cynicism here. He says, the Lord is on our side. You know, even with all of these metaphors of floods and teeth and violence, the Lord is on our side. Then he says in verse 6, bless the Lord because he helped us to escape all these things. And then in verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. Now the inner cynic might look at David's words and say you could have fooled me. This all sounds so pie in the sky and in fact if God does exist which we're certainly starting to doubt now at least the existence of a good god and a loving god if he does exist then he's the god of no help not the god of help. You know this boils down for the inner cynic to a question of integrity. Remember when Job and his wife went through identical circumstances? They lost everything. They lost their ten children. They lost their livelihood, their business, their wealth. Uh, their property was, was destroyed by terrorists. Job's health was, uh, was, was severely compromised. And Job's answer was to fall to his knees and worship and say, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave... The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's sort of like that song that we sang Jordan Coughlin wrote. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. The Lord is my shepherd. David wrote elsewhere. I shall not want. If I have Jesus, I have everything. If I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. But then Job's wife, who's going through all the same circumstances, Says to Job, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Specifically, to your integrity, to your idea, to your understanding of integrity. Curse God and die. Let me tell you about my integrity, Job. My integrity is true to my feelings. My integrity is true to my truth. And my integrity tells me that God is a betrayer if God even exists. Curse God and die. God has disintegrated, he has disintegrated himself, and that's my integrity, to name it. That's what the inner cynic does. Israel might say to David, upon reading and even singing this psalm, your optimism is insulting. Your optimism about our suffering and our pain and our history is insulting, because the cynic says that pain, betrayal, and things like joy and hope are not compatible with each other. There are a couple of ways to slice this. Uh, One example is the Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a New York Times bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it was a book that he wrote uh, as a way to process his, his beloved son's diagnosis and death from leukemia and the rabbi was wrestling with what what in his experience became a, a a visceral tension between declarations in scripture of the notion that God is completely loving and that God is completely sovereign like we've we've said uh, earlier this morning he's in control of everything he's completely loving And my son got leukemia and died. So something has to go in order for integrity, for honesty, for reality, for my truth to be fully embraced and held on to without me, you know, sort of losing my mind. And so I can't let go of the love of God, so I'm going to have to let go of the sovereignty of God. There must be some reality... That brings us all to the conclusion that God, he really does love us. We cannot even possibly think about a world in which God doesn't love us. And so he must not be able to control the things that happen. That was the conclusion of Kushner's book. Now, Elie Wiesel, another Jewish man, uh, wrestled with the same tension between the goodness and love of God and the sovereignty of God. But Elie Wiesel went the other direction. Elie Wiesel was a young boy uh, who was imprisoned in the Auschwitz uh, prison camps during the Holocaust and lost his entire family and witnessed and experienced atrocious things. And this is what Elie Wiesel wrote in his, uh, his memoir of those Holocaust days called Night. He said this, I no longer prayed for anything. I was the accuser and God the accused. My eyes had opened and I was alone, terribly alone in a world without God, without man, without love or mercy. I was nothing but ashes now, but I felt to myself to be stronger than this almighty to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. Cynicism, or or, or sort of the disintegration of some attribute of God that we have once depended on and then have decided not to depend on anymore. Cynicism is a coping mechanism. It's a numbing agent because we're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of being left alone and so if we sense that we're going to be abandoned, if we sense that we're going to be alone, then we do the abandoning first. And what's happened here is that both Kushner and Wiesel in different ways have left the fullness of God alone. Have abandoned the fullness of God. That's what cynicism leads us to do. And this is Satan's strategy. It's been our enemy's strategy ever since the Garden of Eden to cause us to doubt the character of God, either his power, his sovereign power, or his infinite love. And Satan's end game is to get us living in. What theologians call that malediction that was first pronounced, that bad word. You know, our benediction, which we send you out with at the end of the the service, that's Latin for good word. The malediction is the bad word. The very first malediction that God ever pronounced was, it's not good for human beings to be alone. And that is what Satan is desperate for, is that we would be isolated and alienated from God and from community. You can hear it in Elie Wiesel's words. I was alone in a world without God, without love, without mercy. I was alone in my fight against demons, alone in my disappointments, alone in life's storms, alone with the pain, the injustice, the tears, and the fears. And then for Harold Kushner, integrity meant saying goodbye to part of God. For Elie Wiesel, integrity meant saying goodbye to all of God. Either way, you get the same outcome. You feel alone. You feel abandoned. That's the contributor to our cynicism against God. We feel like he's abandoned us. But then there's self-contempt. Self-contempt is is when we take the cynicism that that, that we have toward God, toward the universe, uh, toward maybe somebody or somebodies who've abused us, hurt us, injured us, betrayed us, and then we turn that contempt toward ourselves. And when we read in verse 7, we have escaped like a bird. I can't can't help but think of that movie scene, and maybe some of you are thinking of it right now, in Forrest Gump, where the young Jenny, who is the love of Forrest's life, uh, from the day that he first lays eyes on her in their childhood, and the young Jenny is in a cornfield with Forrest, and she starts praying, and she says, God, make me like a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. You know, she's expressing to God her pain because of a violent, abusive, volatile, alcoholic father. And eventually, Jenny does leave home. If you've seen the film, you know this. She, she leaves home, but this contempt that she grew up with, with her father, uh, she she takes it with her and turns it toward herself, and 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 it's it's just such a tragic, a sad story that we watch unfold for Jenny as she gets caught in drugs and promiscuity and and uh, ultimately venereal disease that wrecks her. But she gets caught in the drugs and the promiscuity and the fast. Living, because she's desperate. She's desperate for love and she's looking for it in in all kinds of irrational places because she never knew love where she was meant to know love and meant to learn love. And meanwhile, the person that never leaves her and never forsakes her, who is right there all along, is Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump cannot, does not, will not give up on Jenny. She misses Forrest until the very end when she's dying of of presumably uh, AIDS. And it's then that she experiences the unconditional love and finally receives the unconditional love that's always been there for her. Forrest proposes to her a dying woman After burying his own mother and staying with his mother all the way to the end as she dies of cancer, he then proposes to another dying woman when she is sick, when she's at her lowest, when she's at her worst and delights in her and tends to her needs for the rest of their days. Brennan Manning called this kind of love vulgar grace. Brennan Manning, lapsed Catholic priest, Raging, alcoholic divorcee who wrote some masterful works about the grace of God. And this is what he says. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at ten till five. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, but it's free. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might, to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. You know, the Jenny in us might say to this notion of vulgar grace, marry you, O bridegroom, you don't know my story, if only you knew my story. But just like Forrest was there all along with Jenny, Jesus has been there all along. He, he knows our stories. He knows the details and the motives. He's known it all along. He's been there all along. You know, those of you who are Bible readers, you've probably noticed at some point that Jesus refers to himself as a physician. Physician. You know, there are all these "I am" statements in, in, in the Gospel of John. You know the famous seven "I am" statements: I am the vine; I am the way, the truth, and the life; I am the bread of life; I am the resurrection, and so on. There are a few other "I am" statements. One is in Matthew chapter eleven: "I am gentle and humble in heart. You come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls, because I am gentle and humble." In heart. Another thing he says about himself is, I am a physician. I am. My very nature, my very identity is healer. The thing about the best physicians is that they never get over that magnetic pull to a sick person in distress. Think about all the doctors and, and, and healthcare care professionals that have been working overtime in these past months. Those that I've talked to are simultaneously distressed by the pain that's there in the human community and, and, and the threat that's there for the human community and completely motivated to do something about it. Jesus is completely motivated to tend to the sick and to tend to the hurting. To tend to our self-contempt. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, God loves to forgive even more than you love to sin. He loves to heal even more than you love to stay sick. He loves to pull you up onto that path of recovery even more than you love to stay addicted. God loves to forgive more than we love to. To sin verses one and two this is david's declaration god has always been on our side he says it twice and in the ancient hebrew as well as the ancient new testament greek when you repeat something it's like putting an exclamation point after it he has always he doesn't say he's now on your side now that you're on board with him he says he's always been on your side Jenny, when you were promiscuous, when you were shooting up heroin, when, when you were way out there in prodigal world, he was there. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's never abandoned you. And so what makes you think he ever will? What makes you think he ever could? To do that would would would, 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 would mean he would have to depart from his very identity. As a gentle and humble in heart one, as the physician, whose very purpose is to heal, and whose very purpose is to marry himself to an addicted, dying bride who is at her lowest and at her worst, and yet he still wants her. You know, you read the Matthew one uh, picture of Jesus's ancest- ancestry, and here's just a sampling of the people. Uh, To whom the Lord said, I am on your side, Abraham, the terrible husband, Jacob, the terrible liar, Rahab, the prostitute, Jesse, the passive-aggressive abusive father, David, the adulterer and murderer, Solomon, who was born to David by the wife of Uriah, it says in Matthew chapter 1. There are also others to whom the lord said and demonstrated that he was on their side lepers people who were scared in a boat paralytics people who had gone mute and blind people who were anxious angry and tired i am on your side i'm on your side i'm for the weak i'm on the side i'm on your side james and john with your big egos you care so much more about your platform than you do about the mission and the ministry to which I've called you, wanting to sit at my right and my left. What's What's that about? I'm on your side, Peter, after you've denied me three times. I will restore you three times. I'm on your side, Judas. As Matthew can only think of one word to describe you in his narrative, betrayer, Matthew also has to fight to tell the truth. About what I called you when you were betraying me. Friend. The thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I'm on your side. Those who were killing him on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm on their side. Paul, who had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I'm on your side. You think the grace of God can't reach you? You think the physician can't heal you? You think Forrest Gump doesn't still want to marry you? Live with you forever? He's never left you. Faith with a filter. This is where we take our cynicism and we take our self-contempt and we run it through the filter of three realities. And you know what happens when you run something through a filter? The filter holds on to the junk, and, and the pure stuff gets through, and, and that's what's left. The filter that, that leads us to the pure stuff, which is honest lament. Lament without cynicism about how hard things are, about how broken and tragic things are. Honest lament, telling the truth about life as the Psalms do, but without cynicism and without self-contempt, but rather with hope. To be able to grieve, as Thessalonians says, but not as those who are without hope. Here's the filter. It has three parts. Who God is. Verses 1 and 2, he's on your side. Verse 8, he's your help. Who also made heaven and earth. He's both loving and powerful. Neither attribute is compromised ever by the other. You don't ever have to choose between God's sovereignty and his love. And when you feel you have to choose between the two, the problem is not with God, it's with our interpretation of God. You see, we, 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 we filter the character of God through our circumstances, rather than filtering our circumstances through the character of God. It's backwards thinking. He's our help. You know, Micah Edmondson, uh, who is the, the newest pastor on our staff, uh, he preached at the Cool, cool Springs congregation. Uh, Last Sunday, I went over and he told this great story. It's a true story about a pastor, an urban pastor named James Whitehead. And he was raising two young children in a very rough urban context. And the two kids, all they wanted to do was get a little bit of independence and be able to walk together to the store alone. Just them. And so eventually, the father said, okay, you you can walk to the store alone. But as Micah told the story, they went out the front door, he went out the back door. They thought that they were walking independently, without their father, to the store in this dangerous neighborhood. But the truth was that their father was walking right alongside them on a parallel street. And on their way to the store, they were confronted by a stray angry snarling pit bull who was snarling at them was moving toward them and preparing to attack them and the father stood behind the two daughters as the two daughters were looking at the pit bull with their backs turned to their father and he held up a stick and he looked in the eye of that pit bull he looked into the snarling teeth of that pit bull And the pit bull walked away in fear. Pastor James Whitehead, the father in this episode, said this. My children never saw their father, but the dog did. When the dog saw that stick in my hand, he took off running. The children didn't see their father. But trouble saw their father, and trouble responded to an authoritative presence. Book of Job. There's all this behind-the-scenes stuff going on. And, you know, the big question is, why would God give Satan so much power over Job? At the end of the story, we we realize that God only gave Satan enough leash with which to hang himself. Because trouble looks at the Father and responds to an authoritative presence. Who God is. He's loving and strong. What he has done. He didn't hold up a stick. Instead, he was held up on one. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. All these metaphors in this psalm are ultimately about Jesus himself, who went under the flood, who had snarling teeth, you know, clasping down on his carotid arteries, so to speak. Who was snarled at. People rising up against him. Violence. That was Jesus in our place. And then what, what he will do. Very quickly, here's what he will do. He will stay with us. Matthew 28, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He will also help us. Remember, our help is in the name of the Lord. Help us with what? He will help us, as he did with traumatized Israel, to stay, to endure, to persevere. That's the sign of the strength of God in their lives. Not that he's removed all of their difficult circumstances from them, but that he has preserved and strengthened them uh, so as to persevere and endure through those circumstances and to stay with God in the middle of things like global pandemics and crashing economies. And then to form us, Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope. And hope does not disappoint for God has poured out his love in our hearts in Christ Jesus. I love what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, and this is from a secular perspective. And yet it resonates so much with what this psalm and the scriptures themselves testify to. She says this. She's a grief expert. Her famous book, her most famous book is on death and dying. I think that's right. And she says this. The most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. Here's how we find our way out of those depths through bitter ingredients that make things like unleavened bread and bitter wine. We made cookies this week, those cookies include slimy raw eggs, slimy butter, bitter uh, baking Soda, stuff that you wouldn't, bitter salt, stuff you wouldn't want to put in your mouth by itself. Think about those bitter ingredients as the hard circumstances of life and the hard stuff of life. But you put it in, you turn the heat up, you mix it all together, and what comes out is something quite delicious. And that's what what God says to us. There is something quite delicious on the other side of the universe turning up its heat on you right now because his plans are still to prosper he has not forgotten us he's with us in the fire and the flood he is faithful forever perfect in love he is sovereign over us let's pray father in heaven we thank you for the lord's supper we thank you lord that that there were so many bitter ingredients to your own life your humiliation your poverty The betrayals that you endured, the cross, facing and entering into death. And yet, Lord, what was on the other side of that bitterness was something so delicious and so everlasting, a love that will not let us go. We thank you for this. We pray, Father, now that you would set apart this bread and this cup, that you would You would meet us in the partaking of this meal. and this we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for giving Christ. We thank you for so loving the world that you gave your only begotten Son. Not just to put up with us, but to stay with us and to be with us always to the very end of the age when we wanted to be made like a bird so we could fly far, far away from here. You gave us the promise that those who hope in and wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles, will walk and not grow weary, and will run and not grow faint. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.